You know, I just, uh, I love camp meeting, and uh, I love to see the folks here this morning. It dawned on me that uh, there are people that watch from all over the place. I had a former student from Emmanuel, uh, Gina Campos, if you're watching this morning, Gina, she uh, texted me from, she's in Tennessee right now, and watching the devotional yesterday. My brother John lives in China, his wife works, he, he, they're both working in China, they have a little church group there, and they're watching these morning devotionals for their evening meetings. I'm the keynote speaker. So to our friends, our brothers and sisters in China, I want to say good morning, good evening, welcome. And for all of our other viewers, welcome to our devotional this morning. I want to tell you something. I have really personally felt the, 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 the anger of the enemy at what's happening here at this camp meeting. Uh, I have been wrestling, even as I'm pulling these together, you, there's a spiritual battle, and I hope you understand that. We're not just coming out here for a casual time in the morning. I appreciated so much uh, Brother Kelly's messages yesterday and, uh, and, and some of the soul-winning uh, testimonies and everything, but the enemy's not happy with it, and I just want to solicit your prayers. Pray for all the speakers here, please. And let's pray for ourselves. It was Pastor Richard O'Phil who used to say, you know, we pray for the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says, let's not just pray for the Spirit's outpouring. Let's pray we get in on it. Because we're told that the, the early rain is as accessible to us as it was in the church in Pentecost, and we're not seeing that kind of power now, and that's accessible. Why aren't we seeing it? We need to pray the Lord keep us open to what he wants to do for us and in us and through us. I want to bow and pray this morning. I'm going to ask as I kneel if you'd bow your heads. Uh, while we invite the Lord to lead. Sounds awkward, Lord, this morning that we would invite you to lead. Father, we, we can do nothing of ourselves. You have drawn us here, and we are here, Lord, believing that you have something to give us, but we need you to tune our hearts, bring us in harmony with your will, with your mind, help us to understand the message you have for us this morning, Lord. May it be communicated clearly by the power of the Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned yesterday, I've entitled our series, Going the Distance. I want to be that generation that sees Jesus come. Uh, we're, our theme is, is as a witness and it's interesting, I've done a lot of witness, I've been witnessing training for 20 years now, and it's this one thing that is essential for any witness, and that is that a person is excited about what they're witnessing about. I have done a lot of practical training on how-tos, but you can how-to all day long for somebody who doesn't have a burden for what they're sharing, and they're not going to share it. But on the other hand, if a person is excited about something, they don't need how-tos. I can't say that. How-tos can be helpful, but that's not going to keep them from not sharing. We need to be excited about our experience with Christ, and that's what we're talking about this morning. Yesterday, we talked about God's love for man uh, in as much as we could. It's an unfathomable topic we'll be studying throughout, throughout eternity. Um, but what I want to remind us of from yesterday is that Scripture's clear that God takes the initiative in all of the work of salvation. It's God who draws us to himself. God's love for man is unique and very unlike human love. And that it's more of a choice than a feeling. 
It's more of a principle than an emotion. God loves us because of who He is, not because of who we are. And it is precisely for this reason that His love for us is unfailing and unchanging. Not one will be lost. I mentioned this yesterday. Not one will be lost because God didn't love them or because He stopped loving them. Now, somebody brought up a good text to me afterwards from the Psalms yesterday, and you can find it in other places, where the Bible talked about how the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, but His face is against those who do evil. And we need to be clear on something. When the Bible says God's face is against those who do evil, it still is not saying He doesn't love them. In other words, when God destroys the wicked at the end, it's not because He didn't love them. You imagine any child you have that gives you trouble up to here, and you in your earthliness still love them. And I think sometimes it's important as we go on through the week to understand that just because God's love is unchanging doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved because God loves them. And that's a tragedy. Everybody can be, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Yesterday we talked about the love of God for humanity. Today we're going to talk about man's need, the sinner's need of Christ. The message is entitled, I've entitled, The Little Engine That Couldn't. And you're probably familiar with the old children's story about the little engine that could. In fact, the, the story, the earliest known sto- uh, uh, rendition of the story was in a sermon delivered by the Reverend Charles S. Charles S. Wing. It was published in the New York Tribune in April of 1906. And after that, various versions of the story were, were uh, uh, shared. One of the more popular ones was a story entitled The Pony Engine in 1916 by a school teacher named Mabel C. Bragg. And the story is a pretty simple and straightforward story about a little engine. It was personified in a a railway yard and there was a train that needed to be taken over a hill and, well, the big and important engines couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, made excuses about doing it. And when they came to the little engine, the little engine said, I think I can, right? I think I can, I think I can. And, and he did because of his positive thinking. And that's what the story really was all about. It was used to teach children the value of optimism and hard work, the power of positive thinking. And there's something to the power of positive thinking. Even scripture tells us a man is a man thinketh and he, in his heart, so is he. Self-help books and seminars and inspirational, motivational speakers have talked about the power of positive thinking for some time. I had shared a, found a statement a while ago by somebody I used to uh, look up to back in my BC days, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who once said, as long as the mind can envision the fact that you can do something, you can do it. As long as you really believe 100%, and that's the philosophy of many people in the world, and I want to tell you that people with that philosophy have accomplished many things. There is something to the power of positive thinking, to a point. But this fails to take into account that at the core of everything human, there is a fundamental flaw. The very nature of man has been irretrievably corrupted. In the book Steps to Christ, it says this, education, culture, the exercise of the will, human effort, are powerless 
in this sense. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. Why don't you go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. There God created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says when He created the earth and all the work was done, it was what? The Bible says it was very good at the end of Genesis chapter 1. And as His crowning act, He created mankind, Adam and Eve. And when He did, the Bible tells us something here in Genesis chapter 1 that I want you to note, verse 26. The Bible says, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I know we're going a little bit before their creation or the reason. I want you to just see something here. According to our likeness, let them have, what's the word? New King James says, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does dominion mean? What did God set Adam and Eve up as? The king and queen of this earth. They were the rulers of this earth. God made them so. He put everything under them. As they came forth from the hand of their creator, we're told in the book Steps to Christ, man was originally endowed with noble powers and a well-balanced mind. He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure. His aims holy. But things did not stay that way. We go to Genesis chapter 3 and we do not know, Scripture does not tell us what, how much time elapsed before we get to Genesis 3 verse 1 where we find the temptation in the garden of Eve. The Bible says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That always, I I have to watch my time this morning. I could go off on this quite a while. It it fascinates me, this approach, because the devil still uses it. Did God really say you couldn't do that? When I talk to young people, I mean this is the, what's implied right away? Did your parents really say you have to be home by 10? Right? I mean, as soon as you hear that, did he really say what's being impressed? What's being communicated? He's unreasonable. This is, this is ridiculous. He's asking, what? Now, incidentally, God didn't say they couldn't eat of any, every tree of the garden, the way he words it too. Could you? Well, the devil tempts Eve to distrust what God had said. The Bible says in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So he, in, he, he introduces this little, Hey, look, God's not telling you everything. I'm telling you everything. And God knows what I'm saying is the right thing. God knows it in the day you eat of it. 
Your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, as the devil does with so many things, there's some partial truth there. But I want you to notice verse 6. The Bible says, so when the woman, what? Saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Was that tree going to make anyone wise? But she saw it that way. And I want you to note that when the woman saw it the way the devil was saying it, that's when sin conceived in her mind. That's when the temptation, she didn't have to believe it, but when she saw it the devil's way, I like to call it unrighteousness by faith. She had two people to choose. She could have trusted in God's word. God said she could have trusted that. But she and then her husband Adam chose to trust what the devil said over what God said which tends to happen a lot today. We'll flesh that out more probably through the week. And she took the fruit and ate. And when she did that, something changed. The Bible says in verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is a very different thing for Adam and Eve. We don't get any impression whatsoever in Scripture that there was ever a hiding of themselves from the Lord. But something changed when Eve started believing what the devil said. Something changed in her being, in her nature. Adam and Eve began to question God's goodness. And they began to read selfishness into his motives. And so when he came seeking for them in the cool of the day, they hid. You go to Isaiah 59 with me. This is what the Bible tells us. Isaiah chapter 59, a verse you're probably fairly familiar with. Verses 1 and 2 actually. Bible says in Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not, what? Shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your, what? Your iniquities have separated you from your God. What are iniquities? What is sin? That's us just fighting against God, right? Yesterday we talked about when we were enemies, right? We're not enemies because God's fighting us, we're fighting Him. The Lord's arm isn't shortened that he can't save us. So God's saying, it's not that I, I can't, I'm, I, there's not any limitation on my part to saving you except you. Your iniquities have separated. They caused a separation. And that separation wasn't just a physical separation. It first began in the mind. There was this distance. Adam and Eve began to question God's goodness. And so when God came looking for them, they said, mm, I wonder, he's probably up to something just like the serpent said. And they ran. And hid themselves. The Bible goes on there in Genesis 3 to tell us that Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. And there was an angel placed at the gate to guard the way, to keep the way, depending on translation that you're reading, to the tree of life. Anybody ever see, I'm going to move ahead here to this. Anybody ever see this? This picture, a picture like this, angel casting them out of the garden, and they're, you know, the tree's got the sword in his hand. It's interesting, 
aside here, well, not a total aside, that if you do a little searching or a little study on that word sword, when the Bible says the angel stood with a sword, the uh, Hebrew means actually a glittering of a sword, not an actual sword. And if you do a little more study, you'll find, and you'll find this confirmed in the Spirit of Prophecy writings as well, that, that what that was describing was a light. It's a self-emanating, spinning, dazzling light that looked like a sword spinning in every direction. That's what was, how it was communicated by the author of Genesis. And it actually refers to the Shekinah glory of God. It was the presence of God at the gate. And the reason I say that is, we get the idea that God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and said, don't come back. And he was guarding the way to the tree of life. But the reality is that God wanted to restore man. He didn't want to lose man. And so he made a way for man's return. He couldn't let a sinner take of the tree. But he made a way for man to come back. Now we'll get to that in a minute. I want to look at this statement here in Steps to Christ. It tells us on page 17, through disobedience, man's powers were what? They were perverted and selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so weakened that uh, through transgression that it was what? Impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. Notice this. It was the tempter's purpose to thwart the divine plan in man's creation. You think God was going to sit back now and say, oh well, I guess that was messed up. I'll start over somewhere else. The devil's purpose, and he's still working that purpose, is to thwart the divine plan. He wants to make sure that the character of God is so marred in humanity, nobody would ever see it, that God's purpose for humanity is totally destroyed. So Adam and Eve were sent from the garden to keep the way, the tree of life. Something had changed in their nature, and we see what we see here in their nature, in that, in that separation between them and God, in that uh, darkening of their understanding where they're starting to view God with suspicion. What we're seeing is the beginning of what the Bible calls the wages of sin. Right? Wages, I, I mean, there's a reason the Bible uses the term wages. Most of us at some time have wages, and that's the key word is earned. A wage is something that you earn. And it's important for us to understand that when God speaks to us of evil, he's not just coming up with some arbitrary rules because he doesn't like something. God knows what's best for us, and so anything he asks us not to do is because it would harm us, and anything he asks us to do would bring us happiness. But Adam and Eve were questioning, and they began to experience those wages of sin. It's a consequence. Our consequence is to going contrary to God's will. The Lord warned that on the day they would eat that fruit, they would surely die. And the death that Adam and Eve died that day was spiritual. I used to really be challenged with this. People would say, oh, they begin to die. And the Hebrew says they begin to die, or dying thou shalt die, and get in these long explanations. And so I want to clarify that uh, Spirit of Prophecy is very clear that there's only, one reason, uh, uh, there's only one reason Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day, and that's because the Son of God stepped in the place and said, I'm going to take it. I'll become the ransom, I'll pay the penalty for their sin. So they would have physically died that day, but spiritually they had no option but to die because they chose another master. And the Bible tells us that spiritual life is a thing that comes from Christ. In him was life, the Bible says. 
You'll see this as we go on. That on that, when Adam and Eve made that decision, they had separated themselves in spirit from God. They became, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, alienated from the life that is in God. You understand you can be alive without being alive, right? Go to 1 Timothy with me, chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 6. Interesting passage here. We're not breaking down the whole passage, but notice what he says in verse 6. It says, she who lives in what? Pleasure is what? Dead while she lives. Well, how can that be? You're breathing, you're walking, you're living, but you're living in pleasure. She's dead while she lives. That's because she's sinned and she's going to die. No, the Bible's trying to say here and communicate something that you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in, a gar- in the garden. As a result of their disobedience, they were cast out, but they lost that connection with the Lord. They lost their spiritual life. I want you to go to Romans 5 with me. We're going to look at verse 12, Romans 5 and verse 12. Bible says here, therefore, Romans 5 verse 12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, who was that one man? Adam. And death through sin and thus death spread to who? All men, why? Because all sin. Now, I'm not going on. He goes, there's a longer passage here, but I want you to get that first point. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, they corrupted their natures. They became spiritually dead. They cut themselves off from the life that was in God. Human nature that was once perfect and holy now became estranged from God. It became carnal. Flip over to Romans 8, verse 7, and I want you to understand what the Bible says about being carnal. In fact, we'll look at verse 6 first, Romans 8 and verse 6. The Bible says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is, New King James says, enmity. Uh, NIV says it's hostile towards God. Enmity is an old English word. It's where we get the word enemy from. It's a hostility. It's a natural hostility. And it says the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to what? The law of God, nor indeed can be. You can't urge it, coax it to be in harmony. What the Bible's trying to tell us is the carnal mind can never be in harmony with the law of God, can never be in harmony with the will of God. This is the, this is the, Condition of fallenness. That Adam and Eve brought themselves into, and now according to Romans 5, Adam passed on to every one of his descendants. You see, because he is the father of the human race. He's the father of us all. 
Every one of us comes from Adam, according to Scripture. But Adam had a corrupted nature. Now, what can he, what's he going to pass on to his descendants? He's only got one option. So, oh joy, we're born in this world with Adam's fallen nature, right? Because that's all he had to give us. That's all Eve had to give us. Our, our, the father and mother of the race passed on this condition of spiritual death. So that we're born into the world in the same way. We too are carnal. Now, we're in Romans. I want you to see what Paul says in Romans 7. This is where our scripture reading was. Romans 7, I want to tell you that this passage in Romans 7 is a passage, there's not a single person on this planet who can't relate to Romans 7, whether they say they can or not. Because Romans 7 talks about wanting to do something, the good thing, but not doing it, and not wanting to do the bad thing and doing it anyway. And some people may not admit it to your face or in public, but there's not a soul on this planet who at some point hasn't come to terms. I don't want to say they haven't come to terms. There's a lot of people who haven't come to terms but hasn't at least had the Spirit of God tap them on the shoulder and say, don't you see what's happening here? You can't do what you want to do. You can't do what you know is right. You're a, you're a slave to something within you. So Paul says in Romans 7, verse 14, he says, for we know the law is what? Spiritual, but I am carnal, what? Sold under sin. Now I want you to note something here. What is a person who's sold? A slave. Incidentally, a slave owner, we might say a slave owner has something over a slave. I'm fishing here a little bit. Dominion, right? That's why the Bible says in, in Romans 6, verse 14, that sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Here, Paul's saying, I'm a slave, but it doesn't have to be that way. I'm a slave to sin. I'm carnal, sold under sin. Sin is my master, my slave master. It has dominion over me. It doesn't have to stay that way, which you're going to see. That's what Romans 6.14 is about. So God, when he created Adam and Eve perfect, they had dominion over everything, right? We read that in Genesis. They had dominion over all that God had made. But something is more important that I want you to understand is they had dominion over themselves. And when they sinned, they didn't just lose the garden. They lost the ability to have dominion over their own spirit, over their own selves, over their own choices. And when they had children, and they had children, they had children, and we're here, we land in the same place. And we get in these debates. I had this, our Sabbath school lesson recently, I forget when it was, sometime in last year, we had one, we were going over I think we were going over uh, Romans, we were going, to have, going over Romans 7, and uh, got a discussion in the church about original sin, which I'm not going to break down this morning. concept of original sin is that we are held guilty because of Adam's sin. And that's not true. The Bible just said here, we read it in Romans 5, that, that death spread to all men because all sin. So some people say we're born sinners, and then you get this argument that goes on, are we sinners by birth or sinners by choice? Because God doesn't hold us guilty for being sinners by birth. And, I, and I, somebody had come up to me and said, Boy, Pastor, some people are saying, you know, we're, we're born sinners. We are born sinners. I can't believe we argue this point. Um, and so let me clarify what I'm saying. 
God doesn't hold us guilty because we're born sinners. But that doesn't change the fact that we're born sinners. David says, I was conceived in iniquity. The way we're born in this world, we cannot obey God. There is nothing in us that can obey God. There is nothing in us that has any response to the will of God. Nothing. We're born spiritually dead. That's what the Bible's telling us here. Now, God doesn't hold us accountable for that. But (laughs) what's the argument here? He holds us accountable for our own sin, which inevitably we're going to do because that's all we can do. Are you following that? The way we're born in this world, that's all we can do. Paul is describing that in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, soul under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do, if then I agree. Uh, it, then, Sorry, verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, what? Nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells. For I, to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. But the good that I will to do I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. Why don't you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. And we're going to build on that just a little bit. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the what? This is just talking about how we're naturally born, how we naturally come into this world with this fallen nature. They do not receive the things of the Spirit of God, or they are foolishness to him. Nor what? Nor can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so let's just flesh this out just a little bit more. To be spiritually dead does not mean to be physically dead. In other words, I'm still living. I'm still thinking. I still make choices. I still do things. I'm still interested in things. I have hobbies. I have pastimes. I'm very alive to much that goes on in the world. I can be alive to sports and I can be alive to shopping and I can be alive to gardening. But I'm not alive to spiritual things. I can be very excited about the game or the TV show. I can be excited about relationships and all the drama that's going on around me. But then I'm in church and I just, oh, I can't get anything out of it. And of course, this is what we do in our day today. We talk about the speaker and we say, well, if he was just a little more dynamic... I don't know, we have still that. I, I, I pastor an academy church, so this is what I hear a lot, is, well, we need to get a youth speaker in and somebody who's going to be more entertaining. I've told people, now, I'm not the best preacher in the world, but I'm not the driest preacher in the world, because I've heard them. And I'm still interested. You know why? Because I like spiritual things. And we've got to come to terms with the fact that the problem isn't the speaker or something else, it's that we're, by nature, fallen. There's nothing in us that wants spirituality. We are spiritually dead. Though we may be physically alive, that's how we come into this world. This is what we read in the book Steps to Christ, such as the condition of the what? The unrenewed heart, it is not in harmony with God and finds no joy in communion with Him. 
The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. I think there's a lot of people in our churches who say, boy, if my church was a little more jazzed up and the service was this, that, and the other, I think they would be terrified if they ended up in heaven and found out that it's just like church. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some church services that might need a little life in them, okay? But I'm saying a lot of times we're looking at the wrong thing. We're even told in the spirit of prophecy that a person who can go into, can go into a dead church, but if that person is, 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 for example, goes into the church on Sabbath morning, they're asking the Lord for a blessing, they'll receive it just because God's going to bless them for being there. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. Not only are we disinterested in spiritual things, there is nothing in us that responds in our fallenness unless a power from outside of us stirs us. So the Bible means in Isaiah 64, when it says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's what Paul means when he says, there is no one who does good, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. I just want you to understand that there wouldn't even be a responding chord in us to God unless God did for us what we can't do for ourselves. And a man that, uh, Chinese man that came to a church I pastored in Grand Rapids. And I remember him asking me one time, he was learning different things about uh, our, our practices. And he said, you know, you guys talk about living good lives. And he was a Buddhist. He said, we believe in living good lives. And you talk about, uh, you know, uh, supporting the work of the church. And we believe in, in, in helping needy people. And, you, you know, what, so what's the di- you live a good life, I live a good life. What's the difference? Now, in that church that we had, the, we, we, our foyer, we had all our doors were glass doors. And we were standing there by the door, and I said, he said, what's the difference? I said, well, here's kind of the difference as I see it. It's like you wanting to come to this church and get into the building, and right inside the doors we had a big table. I said, it's like you coming to the church and wanting to get in the building, but the building's locked. And you call me up and you say, Pastor Mark, how do I get in the building? The door's locked. And I say, hey, that's no problem. I left a key right inside the door. You can see it on the table. Right? Glass. They're glass doors. You can see it on the table. Well, how are you going to get to it? You can see it all day long. But you don't have the ability to get there. And I said, that's Buddhism. In Christianity, God has to put the key in your hand. And that's what he does through Jesus Christ. We're told in Steps to Christ, it is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil and we cannot change them. Education, culture, the exercise of the will, this is the fuller statement from earlier, human effort are powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above, before men can be changed from sin to holiness. And that power is Christ. Some people get irritated when we say that there's only one way. 
right? The Bible says there's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one that has spiritual life. These other persuasions, these other religions say, look for the good that's within yourself and develop it. Guess what? It's not there. There is no good within yourself. And it's hard for people to come to terms. Even Christians, we like to talk about that. We, we resonate with that. Oh, just follow your heart. No, not a good idea. There's nothing in us. That power must come from outside, and that power is Christ. Now, I want you to go. I don't want to leave on a bad note. I want you to go to the book of Hebrews with me. I want you to see something. This is one of my favorite passages. I told you I was going to say that several times. But this really is. They all really are. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, in light of what we've looked at now. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, notice what the apostle says. He's presented in chapter 1, Christ as the divine Son of God. Now in chapter 2, he's looking at the humanity of Christ. And I want you to notice verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5 says, For he, speaking of God the Father, has not put the world to come, the new earth, of which we speak in subjection to angels. He didn't put angels in charge of it. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now he's quoting from the Psalms there. And who's he talking about in verse 6, 7, and 8? What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man, and he's put him under, uh, over all the works of his hands? He's not talking about Jesus. That son of man throws people. Who did God set over the works of his hands? It was Adam and Eve, right? Notice what David is saying. God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, but one testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man you have made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, you set him over the works of your hands. His point here, and you're going to see it a little further, is that God is not putting the new earth under the angels, he's putting it back under man. Remember what we read, that Satan's tent, intent and purpose was to thwart God's plan in man's creation. You think God's just going to sit back? No, God's saying, I'm going to recreate and I'm going to put man back in charge. Now follow along here. We're not done yet. You'll see that this is what the apostle's saying. Again, in ver I'll start in verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, that is man. He left nothing that is not put under him, but we do not, what's the word? We do not, in the New King James, it says, we do not yet see all things put under him. God says, I'm going to put man back in charge. We don't see that yet. Why? Because we're still sinful in the sinful planet, and we've, we're still in the process of redemption. We do not yet see all things put under him, but who do we see? But we see Jesus, who was what? Made a little lower than the angels. Now, in what context can Jesus be said to be lower than the angels? There's only one when he took our humanity. What's the apostle saying? Look, God is not going to leave this thing a mess that it's in. 
God created the world and he put man in charge. Now the devil came in and he thought he messed it up. But God's not going to let it stay messed up. He's putting man back in charge. Now we don't see that yet. But we see Jesus in the place of man. We see Jesus who took upon himself the humanity of man. Verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that word captain is very interesting. The word actually means the head of a race. The head of a tribe. I want you to get what's being said here. Adam and Eve sinned. They corrupted the nature of man and passed that on to every one of us so we are irretrievably lost unless something else comes to rescue us. Here Paul says Jesus takes upon himself humanity, overcomes where Adam fails, and now offers that perfect humanity to the race as what the Bible calls the last Adam. I want you to see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 22 with me. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now look at verse 45. And so it is written, the what? The first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What he's saying is the same thing Paul's making the point of in Hebrews, that everything that we lost in Adam, Jesus came and took humanity perfected humanity, and now he offers that humanity to us as a way out of our fallenness. Now, how did you receive Adam's nature? Wasn't hard, was it? What did you have to do? All you had to do was be born. How do you think you get the second Adam's nature? You get to be born again, and you become, Jesus becomes the head of a new family, and you're part of that family, and you become what the Bible calls a son or daughter of God. Jesus would take the field where Adam was defeated, becoming the last Adam, and as man he would succeed where Adam failed and would accomplish what no other being could, the redemption of the fallen race and the restoration of man's lost dominion. In Christ there's hope of a new nature. In Christ there's hope of walking in newness of life. There's hope of spiritual life bringing into our hearts and minds spiritual interests and desires. Don't be surprised when you're not interested in spiritual things. That's how you're born to this world. But know that through Christ, He can change that. The things we once hated, we may now love. And the things we once loved, we can grow to hate. And we become new creatures in Christ. There's hope in Christ, but it's only in Christ. There's only one name given under heaven. Among men, whereby we must be saved. I want to finish with this statement this morning. This is... This stirs my heart every time I read it. It's one of the most powerful statements. Talking about Christ and the capacity now as his, in his uh, heavenly intercessionary role as our heavenly high priest. 
You know what Jesus is doing as that heavenly high priest? He is, he, is, he is weaving that new humanity, that new nature into our lives. The divine intercessor, notice what he said. This is, this is telling us from the great controversy what it is he's asking of his father as our intercessor. Understand something, that when the priest went in before God, he was the representative of the people. This is very similar to what we're reading about Adam being the representative of the race. Jesus is the second representative of a new race. He goes in before the Father as the model man, and he's asking on behalf of man, he's asking his Father what he wants for humanity. This is what he's asking for us. The divine intercessor presents the plea that all who have overcome through faith in his blood be forgiven their transgressions, that they be restored to their Eden home, and crowned as joint heirs with himself to the first dominion. Way back, the way God made it in the beginning. Satan, in his efforts to deceive and tempt our race, had thought to frustrate the divine plan in man's creation. But Christ now asks that this plan be carried into effect as if man had never fallen. Not done yet. He asks for his people not only pardon and justification, full and complete but a share in His glory and a seat upon His throne. This fallen race, and He's going to entrust the whole of the new earth to, to us. And more than that, a seat with Him upon His throne and restore to us that first dominion. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a marvelous God we serve. There is a way out, but that way is only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we ponder these things today, as we resonate, Lord, with the reality of our own fallenness, as we see the battle of the fallen nature even within us, Lord, may we have hope in the new nature that we receive from Christ in the last Adam, in the the new man, Scripture talks about. May we put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the great sacrifice that was made so that your plan can go on as if man had never fallen. And, Father, we look forward to that time where we can stand completely renewed in your presence with no dimming veil between as it was in the original creation, with nothing in us that wants to run from you or hide from you, but rejoicing in your love and your goodness throughout eternity. Oh, Father, may we all be there. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.